Well, if you have ever played high school football, I guess I'll talk to the men here for a bit, although Emma, who's been joining us for a while, apparently is nationally ranked in women's flag football, but if you've ever played high school football, you know the pep talk. The pep talk. And I'm not talking about some routine rah-rah done by the assistant coach or the defense coordinator. I'm talking about staying after the game, after everyone's gone home mid-season, after a string of losses, when complacency has set in, kind of pep talk. When the only thing you hear when you're out on the field is the buzzing of the mercury vapor lights because everyone has gone home and you weren't allowed to. And the coach wants to have a talk. You're sore, you're sweaty, the night chill is setting in and you feel like quitting and the coach says those famous words, take a knee. He starts out with some strong words, correction on how we as a team have become lazy, sloppy. It seems we don't care. And he says, this is not PE. This is varsity football. And it is a privilege to be on this team. It is not a right. And just because you wear the jersey doesn't actually mean that you're a real member of the team. He knows our hearts. And he realizes that they're not in the game right now. He senses the laziness and warns us that if something doesn't change, we won't just be warming the bench. We'll be back in PE class doing calisthenics with the chess team. And we know it's real because we've seen some of the most talented guys quit before. But then just when you think he's going to start a midnight practice of making us run wind sprints, his tone shifts. You men can do this. I've seen you give it your all before. I've, I've remembered time and time again, and I've seen it when you were down 20, 30, 40 points, and you still ran down every play. You still gave it your all. You put your heart and soul into it, and you left it on the field. I've seen the fire in your eyes. And then he does something, something that has motivated every player since this school started, maybe 75 years ago. He points to the rafters. He points to, to the top of the bleachers, and he points to jerseys you can barely see. And he asks, have you forgotten whose jersey hangs up there? He knows they know the stories. Number 12, that's Johnny Rivers, who in 1955 threw four touchdowns in the last two minutes to win state. That's number 22. That's Kurt Wilson, who in 1986 ran 100 yards and went on to play Division I ball at UT and then on to play pro for the Chiefs. You know who these guys are. You've walked the hallowed hallways past those trophies time and time again, and you know the blood and the sweat and the tears of the boys who played before you. They demonstrate faithfulness and commitment. And that coach looks at you and he says, 
imitate them. I believe in you. You will succeed. Well, that is not unlike what we have here today in the book of Hebrews. This is the feel of what we have. In this pericope, in this this section here, starting in uh, chapter 5, verse 11, that runs all the way through today, chapter 6, verse 12, we've seen a strong exhortation, and then we've seen a very serious warning. And it is today that the tone shifts, and we get a bit of encouragement. Just when you, you think he's going to make us run wind sprints, he says, but I believe in you, and I believe you can do this. Let me pray for us, and we'll recap and look at today's text. Gracious Father, we lift our hearts and minds as a body of believers in unison. Father, we've confessed our sin around the Lord's table. You've given us this ordinance to help us remember what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us some 2,000 years ago on the cross. We've set our affection toward Him We long for the future as the early church cried out, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. And now we still our hearts and we want to hear from you in your word. And I pray that you will do that which you have done throughout the ages. You would speak through your word. You would take this faith that you have given us and you would grow it by the power of your word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us understand what this preacher wants us to hear. Help us to understand the the repentance from drifting, the drawing near, the perseverance, the pressing on towards maturity, looking ahead at those who have gone before us, imitating their faith that is based upon promises good and sure. Promises that you have sworn by your name, for there is none higher. And may ultimately we worship when we hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me take just a moment and bring us back up to speed. Look back at chapter 5, verse 11. We're going to see our text bookended, if you will, by a phrase. Chapter 5, verse 11, concerning him we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become, my version says, dull of hearing. You might want to circle that phrase. It's literally sluggish of hearing. Now turn a page over and fast forward to the end of our section, and let's see that same word used again. Chapter 6, verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Well, you may remember these believers, this this house church, most likely in Rome, had become sluggish of hearing, willfully sluggish, and it had had stunted their growth. They'd become spiritual midgets, as it were. They were not progressing they, they needed to hear something deeper, but they could only handle milk, and, and it was, a, it was a, a choice. You see, persecution was knocking at their door. No one had died yet, 
but they had lost property, they had lost friends. The peer pressure was great, and so they had started to withdraw. Withdraw from evangelism and discipleship, and withdraw from hearing the Word of God. They were unprepared for what lay ahead, and they were in real danger of walking away permanently from their faith. And it is with this bookended term that we see three sections, three sermons, if you will, where we see a strong exhortation, as I mentioned, and then that warning we saw two weeks ago. And then now today, our coach, our spiritual coach, is going to transition, pick us up, dust us off, and say, hey, I don't think this is talking about you. I have real hope. In fact, I'm certain that you will persevere. But in order for us to understand this encouragement, let's look back briefly at the warning. Hebrews chapter 6, the warning really hits in verse 4. It says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So what is going on here? He uses that word impossible. He uses it four times in the book of Hebrews, and in each case it means it simply cannot be done. It's impossible for God to lie. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to atone for sin. It is impossible for someone who has tasted of these things and then punted the faith, walked away to be renewed again to repentance. So it's impossible to renew them again. And yet, I know from Scripture, it's also impossible for us to lose our salvation. So, what do we know? Well, Scripture tells us that genuine repentance and faith are a gift from God. Um, we heard that this morning around the Lord's table, didn't we? Genuine faith produces fruit. That's, that's James, so much of the New Testament. And then also genuine faith perseveres to the end because God the Holy Spirit perseveres through us. So who is this person in Hebrews 6? And if you'll remember from our sermon, we talked about that for a bit, but we said don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't get lost in the weeds because this is primarily pastoral. Certainly it is theological, but it is primarily pastoral. This, this preacher cares for this congregation. He knows they're drifting, and he realizes that drifting has a destination. And that destination is damnation. So who is this person? Well, Christ describes them in the parable of the sower. It's the third response. Matthew chapter 13, verse 7, Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. It was the worry of the world. The act of falling away is something we've all seen. Not only in Scripture, not only throughout church history, but, but even with friends, sometimes with family. You know, the one who's walked the aisle, 
prayed the prayer, got baptized, joined a church, served, on fire for evangelism, and then started to drift and kept drifting and maybe wasn't pursued by people until one point you hear those fateful words, you know, I never believed it anyway. The act of falling away is to go from saying he is Lord to he is not Lord. The act of falling away, aposteo, to be faithless, to be without faith, is to go from saying, I stand with Christ, I follow Christ, to being part of the mockers that cry out, crucify him. I'm not going to make this soft here because the preacher doesn't make it soft. This is a serious, real, non-hypothetical warning. Don't assume that just because you're wearing the jersey that you're on the team. Especially if you've drifted from the field to the bench and now you're in the cheap seats, maybe even outside the stadium. The dangerous destination of deliberate drifting ends in damnation. And that brings us to our text today. It's a serious warning. It's real. But rather than hang in the theological, he pushes us towards the pastoral. Why is he saying this? Because he loves them. And because he wants them to repent. He wants them to press on towards maturity. He wants them to draw near. It's like he's saying, now I don't think this warning is actually describing you. Oh, I'm concerned about the drifting, and it might be describing you, but time will tell. But the fact is, he says, I've seen fruit in your lives. I've seen the love you have for the body. I've seen the service from your hands that, that really only Christians do. I want you to press on. I want you to prove you're on the team. I want you to prove that you are the real deal. And I want you to do it by imitating those who have gone before you. And I have just a side note here, as I want to continue to teach us, to preach, to teach us, to teach, that this is exactly, this, this section in Hebrews models perfectly what it means to herald the sufficient, authoritative, inspired, inerrant Word of God. Amen? I mean, think about it. This brother is delivering the truth fat and heavy with a real unction for change because he believes that it is the Word of God that strengthens the faith that God gives us, right? This is the remedy. He's not with them, but he knows that if he gives them the Word and they're real believers, it'll take root in their life. And so he preaches it fat and heavy with a real unction for change because he loves them. But then what does he do? He picks them up. He dusts them off. He encourages them. And he says, I don't think this is you, though. Press on. Persevere. Now look down at verse 12, and let's get a glimpse of next week before we get into this text. Verse 12, chapter 6, so that, I'm sorry, this is the end of this one, but it sets up for next one. So that you will not be sluggish, but, but what? Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. 
What he is going to ask them to do in pressing on, in persevering, in imitating those who have gone before them is not a bootstrap pep talk. That's where the illustration starts to fall down. It's not because there's something innate within them that helps them to press on. He's going to point back to men and women of the past and he's going to say they were able to persevere because of the promise. Who made the promise? God made the promise. It's as good as done, right? I mean, we would think so, right? God, uh, who it is impossible for him to lie, the creator of the universe, if he says something, will it not happen, right? But you know what God does? In his mercy, goes a step further. He not only makes the promise, but then he swears by himself. Did you catch that? What do we do when, when we really, you know, especially when we were kids? Swear to God, hope to die, and all that stuff. He swears by himself. Not only is my word good, not only will I not lie, but I make an oath based upon my name, the most powerful entity in the universe. We can persevere because we know how it's going to end. Without a doubt. It's as if this spiritual coach is talking to us as a team, telling us to take a knee. And he's chastised us pretty hard. He's warned us of the consequences of not giving it our best, of drifting off. Drifting has a destination. And he points to the rafters. And if you look at the next section... It's like he's pointing to Abraham's robe, Abraham's jersey. And he's saying, look at Abraham. He heard the promise. He pursued the promise. Not perfectly, certainly not, but progressively to the end. You do the same. You press on towards maturity. I believe that your faith is real. Now, that's a long introduction, but does that help us understand this text? Two simple words of encouragement will serve as our points today. Number one, be encouraged by the past fruit that it's not too late. Be encouraged by the past fruit that it's not too late. Number two, be diligent to imitate the faithful until the end. Be diligent to imitate the faithful until the end. So let's take this first one, starting in chapter 6, verse 9. Be encouraged by past fruit that it's not too late. This is where that spiritual coach, his tone changes, and he starts to encourage. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Now right off the bat, he says, but beloved. It's like on Sunday mornings when I see you, a lot of times you'll hear me say, hey brother, hey sister. That's, that's not just a cultural colloquialism. That means, hey, brother in Christ. 
Hey, sister in Christ. Hey, beloved is a very, very tender term using that, that root word of agapao, that godlike love. It's not a churchy word here. And I'm pretty sure this is the only place he uses it in Hebrews. So he's really drawing near. It's as if this coach is getting down on one knee with us and saying, putting his hand on our shoulders and saying, Beloved, I'm not talking about you here because I believe, I, I, I'm convinced even of better things concerning you. I remain sure that you will press on towards maturity. I've seen the fruit in the past and I trust that it will continue. Press on. He's seen those things that accompany salvation, hasn't he? It talks about your work shown in ministering to the saints and your love. Your work and your love. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's what we're learning in Equipping Hour, right? Genuine love for God overflows in a love for others. And it is demonstrative. It's not like we see in Hollywood or in all the songs, I love you, love, love. It's not, you know, the texting or, or the email or, the, or even a note, I love you. It's, I love you, let me show you I love you. Let me serve with you. Boy, we saw it at uh, Mark Sadley's house this week, didn't we? We saw people just loving on Rodrigo and Seri. We want to give of, our, of our, our time, talent, and treasure. John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, it was one of the Roman emperors, I think it was Trajan, I'm not, I'm not sure, that said, these Christians, he even called them these godless Galileans, I don't understand them. Because they love not only their own, but they love our people as well. Meaning they must be crazy. They must be mad. Or this must be real. Right? Have you ever thought about that? We even get a picture of, of these, real, these real pieces of fruit, you might say. In chapter, right down chapter 10, verse 32. He, he tells us specifically of what kind of fruit they bore when they came to Christ. He says, But remember the former days after being enlightened. You endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. He says, I, I, I remember. I remember when y'all first got saved. I remember how you were not ashamed of Christ. You put it all on the line. You, you identified yourselves with, with the saints, though, even those who were prisoners. You served the body of Christ. I've seen that fruit. And that's why I don't believe this is talking about you. That's why I find it so interesting that when people talk about Hebrews chapter 6, they spend so much time talking about the, the, the spiritual estate of this person in verses 4 through 6. 
They argue about it. They write commentaries about it. And I, and, and I get that. But the fact is, the preacher gives us the solution here. Get down on the field. Pursue those who are wondering. The warning is real, but so is the hope. Did you catch that? The warning is real, but so is the hope. Don't spend all your time trying to convince yourself that the guy who doesn't go to church anymore, lives like the world, has no interest in the things of Christ, never cracks his Bible, is a believer. You know what I would say? Save your theological breath. Pursue him. Tell him that warning is real, that if he drifts and keeps drifting and doesn't come back, that he never was really saved. But at the same time say, I don't believe this is you. Come with me. Come with me. Feed them the word of God and see if they respond. Sheep eat the word of God. Goats throw it up. Sheep draw near and come back to the flock when pursued. Goats run. I do not have the time nor the interest to figure out who this person is talking about all the time. My time, your time is to be spent pursuing the drifting. So application number one, who do you know in your circles of influence, in our church, in your family, who claims to be a believer but is drifting and you're not pursuing because you've convinced yourself they're either, oh, they are a believer, or, or I know they're not a believer. Stop. That's in the realm of God. Pursue. Pursue. Tell them about the real warning, but also give them the real hope. Start by looking at yourself. If you see the things in your life that accompany salvation, great. That's half the equation. Do you see them now? Do you see yourself pursuing now? Remember, biblically, the assurance of salvation is twofold. It's objective and it's subjective. It's objective, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. That means if I believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ and I bow the knee to follow him, I'm saved. That's objective. But guess what? It's also subjective. Can I look back at my life and say, you know what? I'm growing and I know it's not behavior modification. I know the Spirit is at work within me. Oh, sure, I'm still a sinner. But it grieves me when I sin because I know I've grieved the Lord, the grieved the Holy Spirit. We say here, we sin less, but it, it smells more. There's something else he, he sees in them. In verse 10, he says, And in still ministering to the saints, he still sees fruit. So he's encouraging them with the fruit that they're showing. They haven't quit yet. Meaning they haven't quit either verbally, I no longer believe that, or, or functionally, that they've just completely distanced themselves. Tremper Logman puts this into perspective. He says, their behavior proves the reality of their salvation. But past behavior alone is not a guarantee that they still remain faithful to their calling. So the author adds that they are continuing in this service and haven't fallen away, yet God, the just judge, knows this and will not forget, 
The point is not that their good deeds earn God's favor, but that God is well aware of this evidence, which is even clear to a human observer. But there's still a danger that they might rest on their laurels. And thus the second point, be diligent to imitate the faithful until the end. Verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let me, let me put this in, in, in plain speak here. Like the coach, he's saying, and I want you not to be a spiritual slug. I want you to diligently imitate the guys who have gone before you. You see? And if he had just left the first point, we might unwittingly walk away saying, well, the warning's not real. Hey, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. But he doesn't do that. The encouragement is not without an exhortation to press on. Be diligent to imitate. And I don't know about you, but when I start to, to feel myself drifting, when I, when I start to feel myself being fearful, anxious, discouraged, I usually describe it like this, I think I'm going crazy in ministry. It's not supposed to be going this way. I, I do find comfort in looking at the old dead guys. I really do. And I'll tell you why, because I'm not talking about just pithy little quotes that you might see. I'm talking about like digging into their lives. Jonathan Edwards is one of my favorite. Everyone, everyone raves about Edwards and how brilliant he was and, and how, he, you know, it was the, the lightning rod of the first great awakening and all that's true. But you read his biography. Man, he had a tough life. But it wasn't different than any other pastor throughout history. Because people are people and pastors are pastors and we're imperfect and they're imperfect and there was all sorts of challenges. And so I read it and it's encouraging how much more when we get to see how it ends with people in Scripture. And we have the divine record of here's when God called them, here's when they really messed up, here's how they repented and persevered. Oh, I, I, I can identify. I can imitate. Who's the author specifically talking about here? Well, verse 13 tells us. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. You've got to realize this starts in Genesis 12. Abram, that was his name then, was living in Ur the Chaldees, it's modern-day Iraq, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Ur was the very cosmopolitan center of pagan idolatry and worship. There's archaeological digs there. Saddam Hussein did it. It's pretty amazing. And there are mass graves of human sacrifice, child sacrifice. This is the world he lived in that God saved him out of. And in Genesis 12, he calls him and he says, hey, I am going to make a promise to you. It's unilateral. And he promises him land, seed, and blessing. I will make you a great nation. But, but there was a problem. He was as old as dirt, and so was Sarai. There ain't no way this was going to happen apart from a miracle. 
But hey, God promises it's got to be true, right? We're all like, yeah, man, if I was Abraham, I'd have gotten to the promised land real soon, set up shop. It was 25 years before he had Isaac. 25 years. You, you think your, 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 your faith might weaken a little bit during that time? You think you might drift a little bit during that time? And his did. But he also repented. He died not even seeing most of the promise. He had Isaac. You know the land he owned? Cemetery plot. That was it. It'd be hundreds of years before he ever saw a nation or saw how he was some sort of a blessing to the world. Of course, he never did except from heaven. But he believed. He stayed faithful. He pressed on. And when he occasionally drifted, he repented and drew near. Why? Well, we know theologically because it is God who gave him the faith and it is God who persevered through him. And so our message here today is the same message the preacher gives to this little church. Drifting has a destination and it's dangerous. But there's also real hope. And that hope comes through repentance. A little side note here. You're going to constantly hear repentance out of this pulpit. And it's not that I'm being negative or I'm beating a dead horse, okay? I heard a sermon yesterday, and it was theologically sound. This guy was incredibly gifted, multiple, multiple degrees, multiple languages, everything. But the, when it came to the punchline of calling the body to respond, it was, and if you want to kind of, you know, be a better person and be more used by God, da 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 It's like, no. You've got to acknowledge that this text is talking about they're in sin, and there is no slight directional change. There is a, a metanoia, a change of mind that results in a change of direction. It is bowing the knee before God in the same way we did at salvation and saying, God, I have offended you, the king of the universe. I have sought to climb up on your throne and take advantage of it. Forgive me. I want to draw near. And there is forgiveness at the cross. We much must preach repentance. So we're to look at those who've gone before us. Now what's interesting is that the preacher is going to give us a list of people to, to follow and look at in the future, isn't he? That's Hebrews chapter what? 11, the hall of faith. Turn over there with me real quickly. So we're going to apply a little bit of this. We got a couple minutes? Good. There's no cowboy game. Um, so if I'm listening to this guy and I'm one who has been drifting, but I haven't punted the faith yet, then uh, who am I supposed to follow? Well, look at some of those names there in Hebrews chapter 11. It's Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Samson, David, Jephthah. And you're like, whoa, 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 hold on, pastor. <laughs> I, I went to Sunday school. These guys didn't exactly have sterling lives. I mean, didn't Abraham lie? Multiple occasions. Didn't Sarah mockingly laugh at the promise of God? 
Didn't Moses get unrighteously angry? Didn't Noah get drunk? Wasn't Samson a drunken slut? Wasn't Jephthah stupidly rash? Wasn't David a murderer and adulterer? What? Are these the jerseys I'm supposed to be looking at? They were drifters. And I'm going to say, ah, hold on, hold on. They drifted, but they were not drifters. Because drifting has a destination. And what did each one of these do? They repented. The encouragement I want to give us is your sin does not determine you. If you're a believer and have repented of your sins, those are nailed to the cross. The preacher is talking about quit drifting. You look at these people, yes, they sinned horribly. But the overall pattern of their life, especially as it progressed, was one of perseverance, was one of faithfulness in the promise. And I can be encouraged by that. They finished the race well. When I look at Hebrews chapter 6, who is this guy? Who is this guy? I say, I don't know. Oh, I mean, I can tell you all the theology behind it, but I can say the bigger issue is if I have someone in mind, I don't want them to be that guy. I don't want their life marked by a continual drift to a bad destination. I want to call them to repentance and walk with them as they draw near to God. And by the way, look how these people are described. Look down at verse 33 of chapter 11. Look, think about how this church is about to endure or be called to endure persecution and listen to that, how that rabble that I just, just read to you, Abraham, Sarah, Joseph, how they were able to endure. Verse 33, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings, scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom this world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their drifting? No, through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Look, you, you, you might be one of these people who's been drifting. And your drifting might have even resulted in some of these stupid sins that we've seen with these people in the hall of faith. But it does not have to determine you. You're not at that destination yet. Turn around, draw near, repent, press on to maturity. Your life will not be defined by your sin because Christ has paid it on the cross, but it will be defined by patience and faithfulness. And at his appearing, 
it will be realized and we will be made like him. Amen.